Hello there. We have a Star Wars-filled first part of this episode of The Break. I'm Father Roderick, and this is my weekly show about Star Wars, movies, TV shows, faith, uh, technology, and books, and so much more. So stick around, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. I'm recording this on a very cool, surprisingly cool Sunday. It's been raining, there's wind. It is typical Dutch weather, but I almost forgot that summers were like this because normally uh, over the past three, four years, around this time of the year, it would be so hot. We would have heat wave after heat wave after heat wave. And thankfully, this is not the case right now. That is why I'm able to work, I'm able to sleep at night. Um, and I'm feeling quite all right, but maybe where you live, things are very different. Maybe hot and muggy. Uh, you may even be under heat alert. I think of, of those of you who are in, living in, in those circumstances almost every day because I listen in the morning. I always listen to the, to the news uh, from various stations in the world. Um, I have the BBC uh, for world news. I always listen to the Dutch news, of course, and always also to um, the NPR news overview. And so every morning I hear that most of the United States is under heat alert and there are like special warnings. They're even considering like uh, creating like a special, I don't know, emergency legislation around this so so they can uh, um, uh, open funds or like help people that are living without um, uh, proper uh, protection against the heat so i always as a european think of the united states as everybody lives uh with uh, with air conditioning but this morning i heard a report that actually in in a lot of the um more poorer neighborhoods, people do live in, in small apartments and there's no air conditioning. And even if there was, they probably wouldn't be able to, to pay for the electricity. So, oh my gosh, I, I cannot imagine living um, in, in, in these extreme... I mean, the, the heat in, in, in certain parts of the US is, is more than tropical. It's almost like what you would have normally in Dubai. It's, it's insane. Anyway... So I hope that things will cool down literally in uh, the next couple of weeks. I'm preparing to go on vacation two weeks from now. I'll be in the north of France, in, uh, in Brittany. Um, and from what I've seen so far, it's, it's quite all right. It's, uh, it's cooler than in the rest of France. And I'm looking forward to it because last year in, in, in Italy during my vacation, it was so hot that I didn't sleep at all. I came home and I was broken i needed another vacation so we'll we'll have to wait and see but i have um i i, I have a little bit more confidence that this year it will be better compared to last year do you know what's going on this is what's happening in your world face it catholics rule we got boston south america the good part of ireland and we're making serious inroads in mozambique baby you've taken your first step into a larger world I've been working really hard on uh, reorganizing my studio. I, uh, as you know, always streaming um, the show live on YouTube, on Twitch, and on Facebook while I'm recording it. Um, and uh, this is also the place where I normally record my standalone videos or TikToks. And uh, as I explained in my other podcast, uh, The Walk, I've been looking at what other YouTubers and content makers are doing and, and oftentimes they're 
setups look so nice and they've got proper lighting. And I've always been kind of improvising. It was almost like a side product, but my main focus has always been and still remains on on the audio, on, on the podcast itself. But I figured, you know, it's vacation. I have a bit more time. Why don't I see if I can make a different arrangement? And so I've been moving around tables and creating a new set. Um, and and I am also going to get myself, um, for the first time in my life, actually, like proper lights. I, I currently am using um, these um, Elgato. I don't know how exactly what their the official name is, but they're like small LED panels. Uh, they're very bright, and they are used a lot by gamers. But then gamers usually have like a, a, a green background uh, so they can place themselves on top of the games that they are streaming. Um, but most professional YouTubers have these soft boxes. Um, so they're giant boxes, basically. that often look like a, a, an umbrella with a white sheet in front of it that disperses the light. Um, so these lights are pretty big. Um, but it creates a very diffused look and that you can also use what they call like a honeycomb type of uh, structure in front of the light so it gets very directional. So right now my lights are also uh, hitting the background and it all looks a bit too bright. Uh, whereas with these professional lights, um, it it will look much more like, uh, more cinematic in a, a certain way. So I'm still working on, uh, on, on, on perfecting this setup, but I'm already very happy with the, the current um, the current disposition of, of my um, of my studio and and I'm actually really enjoying the fact that I have time to do that I know I also want to do this as I've been working on it or at least planning to do this forever to create a proper Lego setup as well so I've built a lot of Lego sets in the past and I've always dreamt of if I ever move to a, another rectory where I have some more space, I would love to have like a small Lego city where I can create these streets. I need to have a room with tables and, and then I can place all these houses and create a, a miniature city that I can then also use as a backdrop for Lego videos. Um, as you may know, I sometimes make these educational Lego videos. They're always super popular. They Most of all of them have, have gone viral several times. Um but ever since I moved, I've felt like, yeah, I, I need to, I still need to work on that. And which room can I use for that? Because even though I live in a big rectory, most of it is just like small rooms. And I don't want to put the Lego in the same room as the, as the studio because I, I, I still want to feel that, you know, not everything is work. So I've decided to sacrifice my current bedroom. And to, I've been measuring up and planning, well, if I can create small tables, like 40 centimeters wide, that's enough for the houses, the Lego houses, plus a road in front of it. Um, that is probably good enough. And then it can fit in the, this. this my, bed, my current bedroom is one of the smallest rooms in the house. Um, so it's just two meters in width and I think three meters long. Um, so it's, not very usable for anything else than just placing a bed there, and then there's no more room in the in that uh, in that in that place. So, thinking, well, maybe when I'm back from France uh, after my vacation, I'll start working on um, on creating a nice Lego setup 
because that room is too cold anyway in the winter time it's it's one of the coldest rooms in the house so it would be too cold for anything else but for lego it might actually be perfect so that's the next thing on my list as soon as i'm done with the with the studio i'll i'll move over to the lego uh, department and then the final big room that i need to work on is um uh basically a, a good bedroom for myself um but oh well that can wait when i when i'm in my bedroom i have my eyes closed anyway so <laughs> it's not very urgent how do you not like movies they're predictable like the guy gets the girl and that kid sees dead people and darth vader is luke's father not liking movies is like not liking puppies they're fine i just get bored and never make it to the end you know you need a movie education you need a movication i'm gonna give it to you we need to talk about Lando Calrissian because I totally gave up on his character. Uh, I, I didn't think that we would see Lando at all in any future uh, Star Wars series or movies. Of course, we've all seen the the uh, the, um, the the iconic role um, in in uh, both the Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. And then, to my surprise, they brought back the character of Lando in Solo. But this time, uh, of course, Lando was played by Donald Glover. Um, and I just didn't think that it would work. I, I also had a, a lot of trouble with the like recasting the role of Han Solo especially since Harrison Ford is still among us and I felt it's almost sacrilegious to do that I mean they they do that from time to time in other movies as well remember Dumbledore he was played by two actors um so it's not uncommon but it felt like Star Wars is too important and especially I mean if it's a side character okay no problem with that but these main characters are so iconic. How can a guy like uh, Donald Glover, even though he's super talented, how can he possibly uh, uh, replace Billy D. Williams? For me, Billy D. Williams is Lando just as much as Harrison Ford is Han Solo. And in fact, I ended up liking uh, uh, Glover's incarnation of Lando even more than Billy D. Williams one. I, I thought he did a terrific job. It was a fantastic role. Uh, there was a lot of chemistry with all the other characters that surrounded him, even with that uh, droid that was uh, flying the ship with him. And ever since, I felt like, well, maybe they won't ever do a sequel to Solo as a movie, but I can totally see a TV spinoff. And Disney at the time was suggesting that they were working on a TV spin-off, but this time not centered on Han Solo because they were afraid that that kind of the fallout of the of the of the solo movie would also uh, taint the reception of um, a possible TV sequel to the solo series. But since everybody seemed to like, Glover's, uh, I don't know if it's Glover or Glover, anyway, Glover's uh, in version of Lando, to have a television series that would follow Lando on his adventures, that seemed like something that would probably make Star Wars fans all over the world very happy. And so for a long time, I was just waiting for 
<clears throat> for the for the announcement of that series, and we we've, we've had m- less important characters uh, get their own TV spin off. I mean, they we did get the book of Boba Fett. Now, I, of course, the Boba Fett for the fans is very important, but if you look at the total screen time of Boba Fett in in the movies, it's a tiny, tiny, tiny role. It's not a very important character. He became important to the fans, but Lando is a speaking role. Is a well. Boba Fett was also speaking a role, but um, Lando is, is is so much an integral part of of the classic Star Wars. Um, it felt just crazy that they hadn't started working on that. And apparently, from what I heard, the reason that they didn't move forward with the Lando series was that uh, for a long time Donald Glover was working on other projects, and so the the window of opportunity wasn't there. And I always have trouble acknowledging that actors are just actors they they have a life be- besides their work and you can only do one or two projects each year, each year and at the time uh donald was working on a tv show i think that ran for four seasons um atlanta and it was quite successful plus of course he's got a musical career um so he was too busy and he told Disney, you know, I, I'd love to return to the role. And Disney was all like, oh, yes, by all means, we would love you to return to the role. But it just didn't work out. And then, of course, we got the whole purge, purging of, of future projects and movies kept being postponed. Uh, TV series got canceled. There was a lot going on uh, behind the scenes at Disney. And we only, of course, know what we see on the outside, but that's only the, the, the top of the iceberg, I think. There was so much going on, and Disney at one point started to communicate. You don't, don't expect us to, cr- to create as much Star Wars content as we used to do at the be- since, since we started Disney+. And that, of course, is a trend that you see everywhere. These, these big companies have been pouring a lot of money into their streaming platforms, not because they love us, not because they want to create... Lots of interesting stories. No, it was all about market share. They wanted to make sure that they got a piece of the pie because there is no way that that we would ever go back to, to regular uh, linear TV. And of course, they were right about that. And Disney was a late, uh, was entering that market at a very late stage compared to Netflix, who had already dominated the market, and Amazon, with a lot of money and, and, and combining it with a Prime membership, was also uh, getting a substantial piece of the pie, and Disney was like, okay, there's only one way in which we can get this, this we can position ourselves, and that is if we bring all our Disney catalog to streaming, and we have to tap into our Marvel and Star Wars acquisitions and put out a lot of stuff that for the fans of the Marvel and of the Star Wars franchises is unmissable. And, and for me, it worked. I, there was no question in my mind that I had to have a subscription uh, to Disney. And, and of course, because they were late at the game, they had to lower their prices. But now every year they start to up the prices and now they're going to reduce the amount of new content. And so I, I gave up on, on Lando. I was like, there's no. They already have so much else that's going on. They're going to have Ahsoka. They're doing all these, these Dave Filoni projects. They've got the, the three movies in development. They've got, of course, The Mandalorian, which they will continue to do as long as, as Baby Yoda is cute and, and will sell uh, toys. They will 
keep going on with The Mandalorian, I don't think that we're going to see any of these other series that they once mentioned. And for a long time, it seemed to be that way. Until last week, we got news out of the blue, in the middle of the a writers and actors strike, that none other than uh, Donald and his brother, Stephen Glover, had signed a contract to write the entire series for Orlando. Apparently, according to the news, this deal was inked right before the start of the writer's strike. They just decided to publicize it a little bit later. Um, but apparently this is a thing. As soon as these writer strikes, and it may still take a long time, but as, uh, once the writer strike and the actor strike is settled and, they, and these creative people get what I think they deserve, then they will, they will start writing uh, a Lando series. And at first I was like, that is weird. Like the main actor who's playing the main character is going to write his own show? And he's bringing in his brother, seriously? I mean, why can't they just get real writers? And then I started to look up these two brothers, and it turns out that actually there is a very good reason to hire these two brothers, because they've been working together for four years on that Atlanta series, which unfortunately I've never watched, to great acclaim. That series had four seasons, which is quite extraordinary for a, for a non-franchise show. Um, and they got a ton of nominations and awards for everything. Writing, acting, the screenplay, the, the art direction, music, original scripts. And so this Stephen and Donald himself are very accomplished screenwriters, which is quite extraordinary because Donald hired his brother Stephen to write uh, Atlanta with him, even though his brother had no experience beforehand in writing for television. But apparently he knew what he, uh, what he wanted. And both these brothers have a very good reputation now um, for being excellent writers, having a good sense of humor, which I think would be vital if you want to do a Lando Calrissian series. It's got to have that swagger, that kind of fun vibe to it. Lando is someone who enjoys what he does. And so it feels... Uh, the more I was reading about what these brothers have done together on Atlanta, the more I was thinking they couldn't have picked better writers um, to, to make this a success. And I think it's very smart that Disney has jumped on on the occasion to to hire them, and uh, because now they know that Lando, uh, not only is Lando a go, but Donald Glover himself is invested in this as a writer and as an actor. So that's gold. Disney knows that they're not going to walk. Um, and for us fans, it is also quite reassuring. We, we know what these brothers can do. We, we, we can see what they, how they collaborated on Atlanta. And, um, and so that puts us at ease as well because the Star Wars fans can be very critical and also a little bit pessimistic from time to time. And sometimes they will just shoot down projects even before the whole like pre-production starts. But I think with this, there's a general good vibe around this project and just the idea that we're going to see the Millennium Falcon again it's 
just insane. I, I am so happy. And I, I hope that we will see other characters from the solo movie making a, 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 just a cameo appearance would be, would be already fantastic. But if they can do that with, with the Marvel stuff, then definitely they should do that with, uh, with, with Lando as well. So uh, that was very, very good news in the midst of a still pretty... Uh, difficult writers and actor strike and um, there is no end in sight anytime soon so a lot of these projects will be delayed but at least we have something to look forward to i i can now just patiently wait for this for for uh this strike these strikes to be over and then we know that um we have some some very fine years ahead of us in the meantime, we're not going to be deprived from Star Wars because they have already finished filming The Acolyte. Uh, we don't really... I don't think we've heard uh, when we will see that series. We know that they've already written The Mandalorian, but they haven't started filming yet. They also have wrapped up filming uh, The Skeleton Crew, which is the project that we almost hear nothing about. But I have a very good feeling about that show as well. So there's plenty to look forward to. And then, of course, Ahsoka has already has been finished for, for months now. Um, and I think that's also going to be quite an epic, an epic moment in Star Wars history. So good times ahead for Star Wars fans. I don't know about Marvel fans, though. I finished uh, watching the last episode of Secret Invasion, and I don't know if you've already watched it or if you were even watching that series, but for me, the finale was a bit of a letdown um i was still hoping that they would somehow uh, nail the landing because i felt that the show itself was extremely mediocre um you could tell that it was um, produced on a very small budget and the whole show seemed to lack direction and um i've i've seen a few because it's easy for me to say the writing wasn't that good but i'm not an expert i'm i'm not i I don't know what I'm talking about. I just have a certain I certain feeling when I watch this show. It's like I don't feel engaged. I don't feel that there's much at stake. I don't know why why this story doesn't work for me, but there are so many other wonderful Marvel series that I enjoyed so much more. Even She-Hulk, I think, was a lot better. Not everyone agrees with me, but I thought that She-Hulk was a lot more fun uh, than, uh, than Secret Invasion. And I just finished... Miss um, Marvel, and I adored that series. That was so incredibly original and vibrant and uh, and creative. I, I that series is way too good for just one season. And so I was like, okay, with Samuel Jackson in the main role, this has to be fantastic. Revisiting the whole plot of the scrolls and this idea of that, they're you never know who if who is a scroll and who is not. This has to be fantastic. Maybe we're going to see like a born identity type of series. There's so many great spy series and movies around. So, yeah, this could be fantastic, and none of it worked for me. And and then the more I, I was watching the finale, the more I also started to become a bit un- uncomfortable with the whole message. What is this show actually presenting us with? There were a lot of morally amb- ambiguous moments in there. There's a lot of violence that didn't really get resolved. Who are the good guys? Are there even good guys? 
And then I, I saw some commentary, which made me think even more about, you know, what, what is Marvel doing right now? And it was someone who did an analysis saying, you know what, this whole idea of the scrolls being these reptilian aliens living secretly among us is actually taking inspiration from this whole conspiracy theory that actually a lot of people believe in, that there are lizard people. And this, apparently, if you trace this back to where, how this... How did this idea come about? It's not just from like a science fiction series from the, what was it, in the 80s or the 90s that I watched as a kid called V, which I thought was very creepy. It was just all these lizards with like artificial faces. And it was a very cool series at the time. But that this actually goes back to um, liter- like fictional literature that was written to justify all sorts of unsavory eugenics type of ideologies and it's um uh this this whole idea of evil aliens living among us in the 90s was explicitly connected with a very pronounced anti-semitic uh uh, conspiracy theory where according to the people that that were talking about these theories, uh, there would be like this big global conspiracy, new world order. I'm sure you've heard about those stories. Um, And and that would be like a a secret alliance between the Jews and uh, very rich, influential Jews and then aliens or lizard people or whatever, and they would have infiltrated everything. And I'm thinking, you know what? One of the things that I liked about Captain Marvel, the movie, is that, yes, there is this... This it, it, the setup is like the lizard people are among us, but then they turn that upside down. They problem problem problematize it because we discover in the in the story itself that in fact these scrolls are not evil. They're not the bad guys. They themselves are victims. They're being persecuted by another alien race, and so the scrolls become allies. Uh, and they and and everybody tries to help them, and I really thought that was that's an interesting twist. And this is how you can take inspiration from maybe very controversial ideas and then turn it around and make us think about you know maybe our own fear of people that are different from us. But then in Secret Invasion, they kind of reverted back to no, in fact, these scrolls are really evil and. They're gonna take over the world, and, and and at the end of the of the series, for me at least, it it wasn't resolved. So you get that really weird feeling that well, you know what? Whose side are are our heroes on? And and uh, it all ends in confusion and fear of the scrolls, and it tells a story of basically <clears throat> the scrolls have radicalized and they're now killing everybody and their plan is to 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 destroy the world and take it over i'm thinking you know what wasn't this what in fact captain marvel was trying to criticize or at least to make us reflect on the consequences of these kind of stories i don't know it was confused it ended with a very run-of-the-mill cgi fight scene and it was over before you knew it and the whole thing just was so lackluster it for me is the worst television Marvel television series that I've watched. Um, some of my fellow uh, 
community members on Discord told me that, in fact, S.H.I.E.L.D., the television series S.H.I.E.L.D., is even worse than, than Secret Invasion. But, well, S.H.I.E.L.D. was was made with a very low budget and didn't have any of the you know big names and but if you have an actor like Samuel L Jackson they should have done a better job anyway that's that's my two cents let me know what you think uh, maybe maybe you liked it i don't know i i felt uh, this is i don't understand why they how they can let this happen <laughs> at this at this stage of the of the whole marvel uh franchise it's it's yeah it it's crazy Anyway, what else have I been watching? Oh, I got to tell you the story, how I rescued Babylon 5, one of the greatest science fiction series ever written. Not maybe made, because of course we now have Strange New Worlds and a lot of the television series nowadays look a lot better than Babylon 5, which was produced when computer graphics were still in its infancy, in their infancy. But the writing by Straczynski is amazing. And, um, and I, was, I had been watching the first two and a half seasons of Babylon 5. I bought the DVD box uh, years ago when it was on sale, and I heard it, people kept raving about Babylon 5. So I felt like, you know, I'm a science fiction fan. I, I, I owe it to myself to check this out. So I watched, started watching the first two seasons, and I thought it was really good. I was really intrigued by the like the bigger... This was one of the first television series that, that had like a pre-planned arc that spanned all seasons uh, everything was written in advance and so uh i was watching the third season that's when things are starting to really the stakes are 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 skyrocketing all of a sudden and there are some very unexpected developments so i was in the middle of that series and then i couldn't remember why i stopped watching and i thought at first well maybe it was because i i just had so much other stuff to watch and then i've when I was rearranging my <clears throat> studio, I found the the box, the Babylon Five box. It's actually behind me here in the uh, in, in one of the on one of the shelves here of the book uh, bookshelves. And I was like, well, I know I have time. It's it's uh, summertime. Maybe I'll just pick up where I left. And so I, I I had written a note that I had stopped watching at season three, episode four. So I opened the box, and then I immediately knew why I stopped watching because there were two discs in there that were impossible to read by my DVD player the the underside of the disc was almost non-transparent there was kind of a sticky a sticky film on it and it was very I don't know the fingerprints and it, it, it was some kind of chemical reaction that had taken place uh, and this was a brand new set. It was a second hand. So, and and of course, I bought it years ago, so I couldn't send it back to Amazon. But uh, those discs couldn't be read, and, and and two of those discs were completely opaque on on the side where normally the laser would read the information. And so I was like, "Well, that is eight episodes, or maybe six, six to eight episodes. I cannot continue to watch the series if if eight six or eight episodes are missing. I, I'm going to be completely uh, confused about the story. So I figured, well, you know what? Maybe it'll be on one of the streaming platforms in the future. I'll check it out later. But unfortunately, it's not available on any streaming platform. And last week I told you that they are thankfully working on a, D on a Blu-ray set with an upscaled version, but um, that's still 
it's going to be a US release first, so it may still take a year before we can get it here in Europe, if, if they even uh, put it up on sale here in Europe at all. So I was looking at those two discs, and it was like, you know what, I, I thought it was DVD rot, which is actually a thing. If you have old CDs or DVDs, you may want to check them from time to time, because sometimes these were produced very cheaply, and the paint on the the visuals, like the where they have, for instance, the title of the film or whatever, the artwork, sometimes they used very cheap paint, and that would kind of start to to react chemically with the plastic of the DVD and maybe also the kind of the data layer. And so uh, a lot of DVDs and CDs have the problem that after a number of years that you can't read them anymore. So I figured, you know, it's probably DVD rot. After all, I bought this set years and years ago. Maybe it's just a very cheap product. So I had nothing to lose. And so I started Googling, well, what can I do? Is there any way that I can maybe polish these discs? And I stumble upon this very old, more than 10-year-old YouTube video. And it's this UK lady. And she is like, have you ever tried to listen to a CD? And uh, while you're playing it, all of a sudden, the, the music starts skipping. And then you take a look at the disc, and it's all like there are, it's it's all dirty, and the fingerprints on it, and it's it's grimy. And you you've wondered, or oh, should I throw it away? By all means, don't throw it away. There is a solution. This is how you clean your CD or DVD. You use toothpaste. Let me demonstrate this. And she has this tube of toothpaste, and she puts like four stripes for uh, lines of toothpaste and then she continues to uh, to show that and then you take your thumb but it has to be slightly moist not too much water because then you will get toothpaste all over the place and then you just gently rub in small circles don't go in the direction of the grooves but that will ruin your dv your your cd but make these small circles and then gently go over the entire surface of the D of the CD and then after you've done that you rinse it and then you tap it dry don't f- use too much friction just use a, a nice soft cloth and then you, you you dip it until all the water has been absorbed by the towel and then look at that and she showed it to get to the camera it's breath this is good as new I was watching this and is this like, for real? Or am I watching, like, a sketch? Is this Monty Python or something like that? What have I got to lose? These discs are unreadable, so I'm just going to try it out. So I went to the bathroom, put on the the tooth, the toothpaste, and I start doing what the lady was demonstrating on the video. And then the whole, the whole disc is covered in, in, in toothpaste, and it smells like toothpaste. It's like, this is no way that this is going to work. I tried everything before I tried to get it off and then it's just so sticky and it felt like the plastic was melting. So I keep rubbing and and then I I rinse carefully the 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 side of the of the disc and I like wait a minute. This does actually look brand new. I start to to dry it with a towel very carefully and I hold it up to the light and oh my gosh all the grime, all the sticky stuff, it's all gone. So I put it in my Xbox that I use as a DVD player. And it immediately starts up. I get the, I get the menu and it's flawless. 
It is as good as new. And so I also did the second disc, and also the entire second disc, which was completely opaque, you couldn't even see the, the... It was so... I don't know. It was almost as if there was some kind of jelly on, on it. It was as good as new. So I've been starting to watch Babylon 5 again. I can now continue my journey after a three-year... At least a three-year break. I'm back to watching uh, Babylon 5. But you may think... You just told us that there's going to be a Blu-ray uh, disc or Blu-ray version. Why don't you wait for that? Because it will be much higher quality. Well, it turns out that the Blu-ray is going to be formatted in four by three ratio because that's how it was originally aired, and the special effects were rendered in four by three. The DVD uses the entire sixteen by nine image, and since the special because it was filmed in widescreen. And only the special effects were were available in 4x3, as I explained last week. So they blew those up. So those look very grainy and very bad quality, but that's only in a few scenes for each episode. Most of it looks glorious in widescreen. And I've seen some comparison videos. And if you're just watching the 4x3, you do miss a lot. Everything feels very cramped. And so having that widescreen aspect ratio is a perk of owning the DVD set, and I couldn't be happier. I mean, brushing my teeth is always a chore, and you do it because that's how I was raised, but I never thought that that toothpaste would would, would be the salvation of my Babylon 5 DVD set. It was. If you've ever had any pr trouble with your digital discs, try it out. It really works. <laughs> <laughs> Catholics rock! It is time for a visit to the Peculiar Bunch, where we talk about those strange aliens that are among us that, that call themselves Catholics? Catholics can be a peculiar bunch. No meat on Friday. No meat? What do they eat? Light bulbs? We don't eat light bulbs, but who knows what these Catholics actually do. Whilst the world is completely oblivious to their plight. Man, you guys got more crazy rules than Blockbuster Video. The one thing that Catholics are going to do this upcoming week is to gather with hundreds of thousands of young Catholics uh, all at once in one single place in the world, and that is Portugal. I'm talking about World Youth Day. This is a massive event. It is, I think, one of the biggest religious gatherings in the world. And uh, depending on where these World Youth Days are held, they can bring together between half a million to more than a million people. There have been World Youth Days where they got more than a million people at present at the same place at the same time. Where does this whole thing come from? I, by the way, I won't be in Portugal, unfortunately. Um, but uh, Father Henry, my my fellow priest and good friend, uh, will be there. Um, and uh, there are lots and lots of pilgrims from all over the world that will travel to Portugal. That most of them are already there. Um, so, But where does this originally come from? This was an idea by uh, the late Pope John Paul II, 
um, he always really was good at talking to big crowds. There, he had a bit of a rock star quality, even though, of course, that wasn't his intention. But he had a charism that worked extremely well with with huge crowds, and he he played the crowds. He knew exactly how to get people enthusiastic and to catch their attention. Um, and at one point, there were in Italy. They used to do these big summer events for young people. Italy being a predominantly Catholic country, uh, at the time that was bringing together tens of thousands of young people. And uh, uh, Pope John Paul II at one point had the idea, well, why don't we do this internationally? Why don't we just take the elements that clearly work for young people today, but let's Let's broaden this to an, on a, to an international scale and let's do this in Rome. You know, we have some experience with these youth festivals. Why don't we invite young Catholics from all over the world to come to Rome and then we'll just have uh, a, a big celebration together and it can be uh, a, a, a way for young Catholics to to meet each other, to pray together, to discover how much they are different and how much they are the same. And, and so that's how the first World Youth Day, I think this was in 1995, if I'm not mistaken. Um, maybe I should uh, look this up on Wikipedia real quick. World Youth Day, when was the first one? Um, Wikipedia... Oh, 85. Oh, my gosh. That's a decade <laughs> earlier. So at 85, I was still in high school at the time. I wasn't even in seminary. So um, in 1985, uh, they, they celebrated this, I think, on Palm Sunday. Um, and then after the first World Youth Day, it was such a success that they, um, they started to move from country to country. So um, one of the next ones was in the Philippines, which gathered a massive crowd. Um, and then every three, four years, um, they would go to a different location in the world. And over time, at first, it was a lot in, um, let's say, the western part of the hemisphere. Um, but then they also started to... Um, branch out to uh, to South America. So we've had World Youth Days in Argentina and also in Brazil. Uh, and then um, from time to time, it would, they would be back in Germany or in Spain and they would go to Australia. Um, and every World Youth Day has been a success. Uh, and so subsequent popes have continued the tradition. And so uh, my first first World Youth Day wasn't with Pope John Paul II, even though I've, I've, I've seen him um, in, 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 in front of large crowds when I was studying in Rome. Pope John Paul II at the time was still alive. And so I've been to a lot of big celebrations in, uh, on St. Peter's Square um, that very much had that vibe. I think I even went to like the local, in the years that there wasn't an international World Youth Day, they would have a local World Youth Day in every country. And so uh, the Italian one was in the Vatican, and I, I, I think I even filmed. Yes, I think I was filming at the time because I was studying social communications, and I wanted to make a documentary about the rock star qualities. Like, what's the difference between, let's say, 
Mick Jagger and, and, and Pope John Paul II? You know, what are the similarities between these big events and rock concerts and what, what's the difference? And so I was filming at the time, I think just with a simple digital camera. Um, and maybe I even wiggled my way all the way to the front. Anyway, I've got good footage that I shot myself of, the, of that uh, World Youth Day. And there's always, World Youth Day itself, is, it's singular, but it's actually a one-week event, or maybe sometimes even two-week event. So it starts with uh, all these pilgrims from all over the world coming together in the host country, and then they are usually first uh, welcomed in local parishes all over the country. And the idea is that they then stay with uh, uh, families, just regular families, or as a priest, I would often stay with the local priest, or um, and 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 you get to know the 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 parish life. So you you meet each other. There are celebrations. There are masses, uh, and 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 uh, uh, but also a lot of just fun encounters. There are some festive elements as well, music and dancing and eating together. Um, and then everybody then goes to the the actual city where the World Youth Day week will 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 take place. And that, th then there are a couple of days leading up to World Youth Day where um, there are catechesis sessions. So formation is also an important ingredient. After the encounter, it's a lot focused a lot on... Uh, uh, and and the, the, the ones doing the teaching are the bishops. So the bishops are invited to accompany the young people, even though <laughs> a lot of them complain, at least the Dutch bishops... Uh, uh, the times that I accompanied them, they, they were often behind the scenes. They were like, ugh, we don't want to be here. It's so <laughs> we don't sleep well. And um, not everybody seemed to appreciate the, the, their job. But the, the, I think it was genius that, that the popes have said, no, you have a teaching job as a bishop as well. You're not just a pastor, you're also a teacher. So you have to give catechesis to the young people. Some of them actually did a terrific job and some others, well, well not so much. Anyway, and then... After those those days of formation, um, there is a vigil, and, and this is there's usually a bit of a small pilgrimage where the young people walk to this. Well, of course, it has to be able to to host half a million people, so it's usually kind of outside of a city, and you walk there, and there is a vigil at the end of the walk, and uh, the Pope is going to be there, so it starts usually the Pope arrives a few days in advance. <clears throat> and then um, uh, everybody gathers on this field outside of the city, and then the Pope is welcomed. And, uh, and that's a prayer vigil. So the Pope will pray with uh, all the pilgrims present. Um, there's no Mass, it's just, just prayers. And uh, in the past, John Paul II would also give catechesis, and so did Pope Benedict, but he tried to minimize his own role as much as he could. So that was the first, my first World Youth Day was in Cologne, in Germany. And the contrast couldn't have been bigger. Pope John Paul II was a, was a rock star. He, he was very charismatic. Pope Benedict was very shy, very serious. And so even though he would wave at the crowd and we would applaud, but he even said explicitly, you know, I don't want to be the center of this. This is about Christ. This is a process, both an internal and an external process. And uh, uh, this is not youth culture. No, this is a pilgrimage. And it would be very much like de-emphasizing his own role as a pope, which was, to us was a bit, yeah, dude, but you're the pope, man. We want to applaud. We want just 
let us let us be happy with you. But he he's it it wasn't in his character. He never was a guy who wanted to be on the forefront, which you know it's it's his character and uh you have to respect it but it didn't have the vibe of the big event that it used to be uh under under john paul ii and then of course he um had um, a few more world youth days until it was announced that the world youth day would be in brazil in rio de janeiro and i was uh, also going to travel there for because at the time I, I was asked to make a documentary uh, about World Youth Day, so I had a press card and everything, and I was in a nice hotel. It was very uncomfortable because I knew, of course, that most of these young people were sleeping outside on the beach, and, and of course, Brazil is a very poor country, and I felt so uncomfortable being in this five-star hotel on you know my my window i could look at this at the at the beach normally you would probably pay 500 600 dollars per night and i was just staying there as a as a priest anyway it was for my job um but this before when once that the news was made public that um world youth days would be in brazil this is when that got uh, Pope Benedict thinking, am I able to pull this off? Can I do this? He had had a small um, uh, bleeding near his brain, so it, like a TI, I'm not sure what the, the term is in English, but a small uh, brain infarct. I, I shouldn't be even trying to, uh, to <laughs> explain the medical terms. But anyway, he knew that um his his health was kind of frail and he was definitely not looking forward to flying all the way to to Brazil and to also these days are exhausting and it was in the summertime so it's hot and muggy and and according to himself later on after he had announced his uh, him stepping down he said that actually the world youth days this upcoming World Youth Day is one of the reasons that he uh, that he thought, you know, I, I, I'm not able to pull this off. But the church needs to move ahead, so let someone else, let the next pope go there. And that's what happened. Right after Pope Francis was uh, was presented to us, he went to World Youth Day in, in Rio de Janeiro, and he told us, I remember, I was standing on the beach, and so we see him, and we hadn't seen much of Pope Francis at the time. He was still a very new pope. And one of the things that I really appreciated what he did was during that vigil, he said, um, if you allow me, I would like to address my predecessor, Pope Benedict. He's currently watching us on television. He is with us. He prays for us. And so I know that he's watching us right now, and I want to... I want to thank him for everything that he's done for the church, and he, so he had this very personal address to Pope Benedict, to Pope Emeritus Benedict, and that was such a moving passing on of the kind of like this. This is so beautiful to see how this new pope, who actually wasn't that much younger than than Pope Benedict, is still honoring his predecessor, and then to have this kind of live connection with uh, this retired pope it was a just a very very impressive moment i'll never forget it so those days are extremely um impactful 
Um, but I also realized that that they are really geared towards towards a younger uh, audience. And at one point, I also have to think, you know, maybe it's it's not for me anymore. There is a younger generation of priests, and they can go there. And um, I don't work for television at present, so I don't have a, a a very specific role to play. Even though it's not far away from where I live, Portugal is just a you know it's just a day day and a half by train, so I could go there. But I opted no. Let's not do that. Let's just I'm just going to follow this uh, on television. But uh, yeah, the younger generation can now uh, take take over, and they do. And and uh, uh, Pedro is uh, a priest, a part of our patron community. He's going to be there. He's just been ordained just a few weeks ago, and he's going to one of his first big religious experiences as a priest is going to be to be to celebrate with the Pope and to be there as well. It must be amazing. It's in his home country. He's from Portugal. I hope it's going to have just as much of an impact, if not bigger, than, than World Youth Day has, has had on me. So, if you ever wondered what Catholics do during the summertime, that's what they do. When did you become an expert in thermonuclear astrophysics? Last night. The packet. The extraction theory papers. Am I the only one who did the reading? I did uh, quite a bit of reading. I, I'm almost... Um, up to date. I, I was actually uh, uh, on on schedule again with my reading list, but this past week has been so strange and there's just so much else. I, I just couldn't find the inner peace to uh, to focus. So, um, but I did read four books, two Dutch books and two English books, and I just want to talk about the English ones because the Dutch ones haven't been translated. So even if I recommend them, you wouldn't be able to read them. Um, I, I read a, a very fun book, and I don't know how I came across this. Maybe it was just when I go to Goodreads, I see what other people are reading, or maybe I saw this was one of the recommendations in my audiobook app. It's called Nothing to See Here. It's written by Kevin Wilson. I think it was his uh, debut novel. And it's such a weird story, but it was so much fun to read. So it's it's a story about this young woman, and... Uh, who is friends in school. The story starts when she's still in school. She's friends with uh, a rich white girl, and she's uh, black, and um, uh, they're very, very good friends. But at one point, this white girl um, goes too far on a party. She uses drugs, I think, and uh, they find the drugs. And then the parents of the girl approach the parents of the black girl and they say, you know, how much do we have to pay you um, if your your daughter will take the fall for those drugs that have been found? Because if our daughter is caught, her life is ruined. You know, her career is ruined. Whereas, you know, your daughter, we love her, but she's black, so it's kind of she she will probably get away with it. Which, of course, is terrible to read, but. You know, not entirely unrealistic uh, in in the context of, you know, American society. Um, And because they offer a very generous uh, compensation, uh, the parents of the girl actually pressure her to take the fall. And so she she has to leave the school and, well, she grows up and uh, there are no consequences for... for, um, 
the drugs other than that she is uh, expelled from school. Um, but then she moves to another city and she f- totally forgets about that friend. And then all of a sudden, and she's already uh, at work. She has a job and everything. She gets a, f- a message from her old girlfriend. She says, I need you. And uh, so she answers the call. She has to think about it. And then she's, well, you know what? I have a, a beef with her parents. But so the, the, the daughter was kept out of the loop. So this was between parents. And so, you know, let's hear what she has to say. And then she says, I want you to take care of these two adoptive children. Turns out that she has married um, a politician, a guy who's a lot older than she is. And he is um, on the verge of a breakthrough, a political breakthrough. And so, um, but the, the thing is, these two children that he had with his former relationship, whether it was a, a girlfriend or a, a wife, the story it, I don't recall, but but there is something with these kids. It's not that they are they have psychological problems, but these kids will actually start to combust when they are emotional. And not it's not a metaphor. They actually start flaming up. It's like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like the, the the Fantastic Four. It, so these children start to burn up and you have to actually use a fire extinguisher to to put out the fire. The, ch- the children themselves are not hurt by the fire, but they can still set things on fire. So it's very dangerous. And um, they are very concerned that this, if the press gets wind of, the, of what's wrong with these children then the career of her husband will be in peril. And so once again, same mechanism, they ask this young woman, can you help us out? You're one of the only people that I can trust. And then, of course, there are very much conflicted feelings, but she she agrees to it. And she gets to know these children. And first, of course, these children don't want anything to do with her. But the more she, she takes care of these children the more she starts to feel like, you know, they need a mother. And I can be that mother. And, and, and I you know what? I understand what it means to be different and to feel like I have to live in the shadows. And so there's a lot of, like, deeper layers in this story. But at the same time, these children start to combust all the time. And, and there's this whole, like, oh, my gosh, what is... Oh, no, they're on fire again. And so it's very funny. It's very unexpected. But there is also this this very deep emotional layer to the whole story. And I won't, of course, tell you how it all ends. But I was like, I don't, I didn't expect... The, on the cover of the book, you see a child on fire. And I thought it was just, like, just weird artwork. But no, it's actually... This is what happens to these children. Um, yeah, never really expected to enjoy this book as much as I did. So, again, it's uh, nothing to see here by Kevin Wilson. The second book, uh, I haven't finished it yet, but I already want to mention it here. It's fascinating. It's not a a novel. It's not fiction. Um, It's written by Kate Green, who actually has worked uh, for a long time as a science journalist. And uh, the book is called Once Upon a Time, I Lived on Mars. It starts with uh, a a bit of an overview of... um, um, space history and some of the first few people that it talks it tells a story about Laika you know the story about the dog the Russian dog who was the first the first creature living creature in space and then she says you know what that that 
at the time, the Russians were just using animals to as an experiment. And, and of course, in their PR, they said, oh, this dog is so noble. They had no way to sa save the dog. But Laika was was positioned as, you know, this this brave dog who is giving, she's giving her life for science, for the future. But one day we'll be able to send up people in the sky, but we need to make sure that it's safe. So this dog, it's going to be her last journey, but we trained her. She's got three or four days that she can live. We has, She has food. She'll be comfortable. She has oxygen. And after after four days, at the end of her mission, the oxygen will run out and the dog will get drowsy and she'll fall asleep. And then, you know, that's going to be her. The, she's giving her life for science. That's how I always heard the story myself. Uh, and I was fascinated with, with, um, with space, uh, this space history and space exploration. So I always... Always imagine, you know, that dog, oh, so such a brave dog. Well, the reality of the story, and I only discovered it by reading this book, is that the dog actually was already, already dead a few hours after launch. Something went wrong. The, the, the last part of the propulsion rocket didn't detach from the capsule where the dog was sitting. And so what happened was that the capsule overheated and Laika basically ended her life in a furnace. But the Russians never told us. They only revealed this apparently a couple of years ago. And so the, actually the dog, even for days they were saying, oh, Laika is in space and she's watching us from above. And such a brave dog. No, that was a fried dog. That was a literal hot dog in that. Capsule. I shouldn't joke with this, but couldn't resist it. Sorry, it's a it's a it's a dad joke. I know, but I'm a father, so anyway. So poor Laika. Anyway, the story. The book is not about that, but it's an introduction to talk about. You know, sometimes you have to you have to experiment before you send living beings to outer space. And so she actually signed up to uh, to be part of a human experiment where they would be. Uh, living for, I think, eight months on a Earth-based station that was set up to feel exactly like a settlement on Mars. And this was all done for research to see how people in a confined space with no contact with the world could how not only how they would survive because of course you can manage food rations and it's still on on earth so in case of an emergency they could they would they had a phone but they could only use it if there was uh, a mortal peril and so for eight months this science journalist lived in uh, a fake martian base even the outside world looked like mars it was all red i i'm I forgot where where exactly in the United States this was, but there are parts, and I've visited those parts, where, where it looks like you're on a different planet. So, and, and even for communication, and that turned out to be one of the hardest things, they could only communicate with the outside world via email. And in order to simulate the time it takes for digital communication to reach the Earth and then to travel back, it would take 20 minutes to get a reply 
And so for eight months, she's lived as if she were on Mars. And at one point, you just start to believe that this is your world. And what I like about the book is it's not just a scientific description of all the experiments that they had to do, but it's also filled with insights at how much that those eight months on Mars changed her whole view of life and what life is all about and how incredibly precious it is to live on this planet and so many things that you take for granted. You only discover the value the moment you don't have it anymore. And and so this book is very inspirational. It makes me reappreciate what we have and the life that we have and to realize how privileged we are to live on this planet and how much we should be worried that with the permanent climate change that we're witnessing right now, the Earth, as we know it, might change forever and Let's not forget that Mars once had oceans, had water, had uh, an atmosphere that was able to maybe even have enough uh, density to facilitate life. But Mars is, if we're not careful, our future, our planet can also turn into a hellish place to live. And we know, of course, ultimately... Once the sun starts to burn up, it will grow into a giant dwarf star and it will gobble up the Earth. We can calculate that. We know that, that this life on this planet is not forever. There will be a time in the future, long after we're dead, that this planet will end. But we are currently accelerating the demise of this planet so much. And it's not just me saying this. The Pope Francis says this. Uh, we, we, we have the duty to the generations after us to take good care of this planet. And this book, strangely enough, even though it is about an experiment that takes place on Mars, makes me rethink how much we take for granted and how careless we are often with this gift that God has has given us. Because it's not just for us, it's for all the generations that come after us and that have just as much a right to live on this planet without having to fear the summertime and having to struggle to stay alive because of the lack of drinkable water. I, th- I, I just hope and I pray that we can still somehow prevent this planet from turning into Mars. But we have to do something and we have to do it fast. Today, I didn't have to cook myself at all. I was invited uh, by parishioners to join them for lunch. So we had really nice sandwiches and wonderful cake and whatnot. And then this evening, I was invited uh, to join other parishioners here next door in the parish uh, um, uh, hall for a meal that they cook for um, every two months for people that... uh, live alone um, lots of widows and widowers of course in uh, among the older parishioners and i think it's a very sympathetic initiative and so um tonight they cooked italian they cooked orzo orzo is pasta but it looks like rice 
And so I, I've tried to cook with orzo, but I just couldn't figure out what to do with it. I know spaghetti. I know, you know, all the regular shapes of pasta. It's just orzo that always bewilders me. Like, what do I do with orzo? Well, they made fantastic orzo. Two types, one with fish and a very light, creamy, buttery sauce and, and tomatoes. And then another very spicy orso with with chicken. And then I don't know exactly what they put in it, but it was really spicy. Um, And then combined, in order to cool down, there was a nice salad. They had amazing desserts. There was this dessert, like a citrus-like dessert. It was, and I, we were all amazed, like, what's in this? There was no egg in it. So is this custard? No, it wasn't custard. So we asked the cook how she made it. And she said it's actually, it is, um, oh, it's, it's, um, it's not clotted cream, but something similar. It's condensed, condensed milk. And I didn't even know that you could buy that in the Netherlands. I sometimes see it in, in recipes, condensed milk, and I, thinking i've never heard of that i've never seen it in the supermarkets turns out that yes you actually you can find it but you have to look for it it's very rare and it's usually hidden away somewhere just because it's not an ingredient that we use a lot but it's so it's condensed milk and then you add uh panna what what is panna in 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 english uh uh, whipped cream so but, but whipped cream before it is whipped right and then you add you add the condensed milk. The condensed milk has to be already uh, sugary or sweet. And then you add the... the you uh, take a, 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 a citrus, or how do you call that? A lemon. And you grate the outside of the lemon very lightly. So you have to make sure that the... You know, it's, a, it's an organic lemon. You don't want any, you know chemical stuff in your in your dessert and then you squeeze out also the the juice of the lemon and you mix that you you can whip it up a little bit and it becomes this very fluffy very light actually it's not light at all it tastes very light but it is very heavy because there is there's cream in there and so it's extremely dense calorically but it doesn't taste like that and then she just put some some fruit on top of it um yeah, magical. I'd never eaten that. And I'm so happy to know that actually I can get condensed milk in the Netherlands. And I now I got the tip on where I can buy that. So that all opens up a whole new range of recipes for me. So I'm super happy with the result of this evening. At the same time, I always miss cooking myself. I love cooking. And every time I'm invited elsewhere, I'm thinking, yo, but I want to cook myself. I've got so many ingredients that I still need to use before I go on vacation. So I always try to get rid of everything that's perishable in my in my um, in my fridge. So hopefully um, I'll still have two weeks to. I, I should be able. I should be fine. But I do want to try out some uh, some new recipes. One thing I want to try out. This is crazy. I think this was mentioned uh, somewhere in on the Discord server. I think uh, where where someone said, "Do you know that in the United States we fry pickles?" It's like, seriously, that sounds like a... This is something that scrolls probably eat, but but seriously, and why would you fry pickles? Well, in the US, we fry everything. I knew that. And so I looked up some recipes for fried pickles, and it's actually just regular pickles, and you just 
put them in batter and you fried them. And apparently this is a very popular snack. I've been to the United States very often. Never, ever have has anyone offered me fried pickle or fried pickles. I do know uh, the the blooming onion, which is also like one blooming onion equals four pizzas or something like that. But it's so delicious. Um, but but fried pickles? No. But now I want to make it. So if if any of you listeners know how to make fried pickles, um, I I want to hear from you. Let me. Let, I want to have the recipe for this because it intrigues me to no end. <laughs> We are on the cutting edge of technology. Wow. Well, what does that mean? Let's plug it in. It's going to say, hey, I see you plugged in a new device. And it's going to load in the appropriate drivers. You'll notice that this scanner built... Whoa. Well, all your technology stuff just ends in disaster. But there is one more thing. All right, let's talk about X. Formerly known as Twitter, this feels like Prince all over again. You know, Prince, the rock artist who at one point in his life and career started to use, like, I want to be now called, and then it was this weird symbol. So I'm no longer, it's the artist formerly known as Prince, because there wasn't even like an ASCII equivalent for this, for his sign, and it just felt like a publicity stunt. Well, you know, I had deja vu with the rebranding of Twitter. This came totally out of the blue. And my immediate thought was, oh, this is because of threads. Threads is a threat to the future of Twitter. And Elon Musk just needs to be in the limelight again. And he needs to somehow position his platform as the future. So he's going to rebrand it. It's now called, he has a fascination for the letter X. Even one of his children, I think, is called X. What? A, oh, gosh. Anyway, um, but this was, this came out of the blue in the middle of the night, and, and he just came up with this, and it was very ill-prepared, because apparently the next day, there were lots and lots of things that, that went wrong. There, for instance, if you want to have an app in the App Store... It, it has to have two letters at least. Uh, maybe Apple has changed this now because of Twitter. But uh, but then X, how are you going to throw away? Why are you throwing away one of the best known brands that still is considered to be the like the the the, the quintessential social network? You throw away that branding and you replace it by one letter X that you previously also tried to put on PayPal. And your space program is called X Space. It's like, why? Why do that? Why replace this iconic blue bird? The, the, the Twitter bird, of course, went through various iterations. But I think the final logo is very, very nice. Extremely well done. <coughs> why replace that with an anonymous X? Plus, of course, the connotations in the digital realm with X is X-rated. So it's... It has a very, I don't know, it just feels like the, all the letters of the alphabet, you pick the letter X, it's Y. I still don't know. No one knows, I think. But it, it, this feels like another nail in the coffin of Twitter, if you ask me. Um, I don't see any benefit from this. And then he, he, he started to, of course, his new CEO tried to 
salvage it in PR. It's like, oh, no, X is going to be the new platform. It's going to be the everything app. And then he's got apparently this idea that Twitter should now turn into an app that is for video and it's for um, for direct messaging. It's for payments. So he wants to, I don't know, do the, another PayPal type of thing. And, and he ke- keeps comparing it to uh, WeChat, which is a Chinese uh, social network, which is definitely all over the place in China. But we're talking about China. That's not an open market. And WeChat was developed in a time that there were no other players. And this particular app had the full support of the government. So if the Chinese government wants to promote its app, then you bet it's going to be a success. And China has millions and millions of people that are not able to choose which social platform they're on. It's just whatever the government thinks you should use, you use. So the whole idea of creating an everything app like WeChat may be perhaps a theoretical uh, opportunity or, or possibility, but in the current marketplace with so much competition and currently after Elon Musk took over Twitter, such a downhill race to the bottom in terms of reputation... How on earth does he think that this is going to work? I, I think it was just a, another brain lapses, I don't know, if you ask me. This guy is so rich that he can basically do anything and get away with it. But I am, I've, I'm more convinced than ever that, that the app formerly known or the platform formerly known as Twitter won't be around 10 years from now. I think it is completely... Uh, I'm I'm glad that already months ago I decided to move away from Twitter, and uh, and I don't see me, myself ever coming back. Um, I don't really think that there is a, an alternative for what Twitter used to be, but that's only a matter of time. I see Mastodon and the Fediverse developing so quickly. I've told you before that I'm a huge fan of what they do with Lemmy, which is kind of like a Reddit. Uh, alternative, but also built on 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 the Fediverse. Um, I I think it's quite impressive what what Instagram did with uh, with Threads. Even though, of course, now after a week, the novelty has worn off and uh, they've lost about half of their audience. But still, we're talking about millions and millions of people, and of course, they are still developing Threads. Um, but they do that in a much less um, chaotic way as Elon Musk is currently uh, changing uh, his social network or everything app or whatever it's going to be in his mind. So I think in the long run, Meta is probably going to take over a large portion of the market. Blue Sky is also Blue Sky is maybe the platform that is feels the mut- as mut- feels the most as what Twitter used to be but it's still in closed beta. And it's also privately owned. It's also just one single organization that has control over everything and also owns what you post to a certain extent. So I, I don't see Blue... I, I feel that Blue Sky is too little too late. It has a very fervent, convinced and enthusiastic user base right now. 
But I don't think they're going to win the race. I think that's probably... In, in the long run, if you ask me, uh, I think Macedon is, over time, going to uh, to win over a lot of people. It is, yes, the onboarding is complicated. The whole system feels a bit clunky compared to what Twitter used to uh, offer. But they are already improving on it. Plus, it's not Twitter wasn't a success just because of Twitter. It was it became a massive success because of all the third party apps, which of course at one point Elon Musk completely banned. There are no third party apps anymore. With Macedon and with Lemmy, a lot of external uh, developers that were developing for Twitter have now moved over to the Fediverse and are now developing lots and lots of different apps that can give you an experience that is very similar to what Twitter used to do. One of my new favorites, and I keep changing, is Mammoth. And Mammoth is available on iOS. I don't think it's available on, on Android. What the makers of Mammoth did was they created an algorithmic feed next to the chronological feed, which is controversial because, you know, who owns the algorithm? And But the fact that you have a choice... To switch between those two feeds is something that I think Meta has now also implemented in threads. So you have the For You feed, just like on TikTok, and you have a chronological feed. With Mammoth, they now have added this to uh, to Mastodon. And what I like about it is that that all of a sudden makes it much easier to discover interesting people to follow. That was the big issue that I had with Mastodon. It is so difficult to find people because none of my Twitter friends were uh, on on Mastodon once I switched over. And there is no discovery. There's no algorithm. Well, unless a third-party app creates an algorithm for it. And they did, and it totally works. All of a sudden, I'm, I'm reading through all those posts, and I'm like, oh, that's an interesting account. Oh, I didn't know that that person was on on Mastodon, and all of a sudden my timeline becomes so much more interesting and valuable. And that's just a third-party developer. And this is in the first year of the big migration, I think, in a couple of years from now. Elon Musk will probably have moved on to another big project, and I don't know what will be left of Twitter. Not much, I'm afraid. Anyway, it's just my two cents. Feel free to disagree with me, but I don't know. As Han Solo would say, I've got a bad feeling about this when it comes to Twitter. <laughs> Thank you so much for the privilege of your time. It was a joy, as always, to uh, to hang out with you. Make sure to check out my other podcast, The Walk. And uh, if you want to support what I do and join me in my mission to reach out in a slightly alternative way from what priests normally do... Uh, you can join my Patreon community over at patreon.com slash fatherrodrick. And I can welcome a new community member. Uh, Smiley Shadow has just joined us from Canada, if I'm not mistaken. So thank you so much for joining the community and to all my current patrons. Uh, I love you guys and girls. Uh, and maybe scrolls, who knows? <laughs> but thank you so much for, uh, for, for uh, being part of that community and to provide me with all your your valuable feedback and even crazy ideas like frying pickles. <laughs> what would I be without you? All right, have a wonderful rest of your day and we'll talk soon. Take care and God bless. May the force be with you. <laughs>